This program has references to family violence, men's violence, and violence in general. Please take care and turn off the podcast if it is triggering for you. People impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse can contact 1-800-RESPECT, 1-800-737-732, a 24-hour national sexual assault, domestic and family violence counseling and support service. This podcast is recorded as part of Safer Pathways Project in Prevention of Violence Against Women, funded through the Australian Government's Department of Social Services. The views presented in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the funder nor of MCWH. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging, and I acknowledge that as migrants to this country we benefit daily from the displacement of Aboriginal people and colonization of their land. Hello, I'm Vahide from Multicultural Centre for Women's Health and you're listening to Making the Links, a prevention of violence against women project that aims to help migrant and refugee women living in regional areas that are experiencing or at risk of family violence and sexual assault to access support services. Why do we say migrant and refugee at MCWH? There are lots of terms that people use to talk about migrant and refugee communities. At MCWH, we use the term migrant and refugee to describe anyone living in Australia who was born overseas or whose parents or grandparents were born overseas in a predominantly non-English speaking country. We say migrant and refugee to highlight the impacts of migration and settlement process on women's health and well-being. It reminds us that the barriers we face are mostly because of systems and policies, not because of cultures or countries we come from. Today, I will be talking to Anu Krishnan. Anu has a background in social anthropology, social work, applied psychology, and social research. Anu has worked with a range of agencies and services in the family violence, education, and mental health sector. Anu is the director of Culture Braille, an agency that she set up that specializes in enabling and empowering organizations to meet the needs of diverse cultural groups. With a strong focus on family violence, Anu has worked with a number of organizations to develop and deliver primary prevention of family violence and resilience building curriculum. Anu, it's great having you here in this episode of Making the Links. We hear that sometimes migrant and refugee women do not reach out to family violence services because of a past experience, for example, a bad experience with intake assessment or the service in general. I think my question to you is what are common mistakes or what are the mistakes that you have seen when mainstream family violence services work with migrant and refugee communities? Um, Thank you, Vahide, and it's really good to be talking about this very important topic here with you. Um, I think you're right. There is often a reluctance uh, from women uh, and children in migrant and refugee communities to seek support when they're experiencing any form of family violence. And we routinely see that uh, 
people from migrant and refugee backgrounds usually delay seeking support when they're experiencing family violence until the violence becomes quite severe or comes to the notice of others. I think in my practice and in my experience in the sector, some of the key challenges that women face is one, the lack of understanding of what mainstream services do. So I think often there is an assumption from people within the services that a person from a migrant or refugee background already knows what services are available. So there's a lot of assumptions made about the knowledge that people have. So some of the things they don't even bother elaborating for the survive, victim survivor who comes through for support, which means that sometimes the support that they get is not um, 100% effective. There is also a lot of assumptions made based on the knowledge of the migrant cultural background that mainstream services have. So they might find themselves inadvertently making decisions for the client or making decisions based on what they think the client needs. And these may not match what the migrant person requires or in fact even wants from the service. If the person reaching out for service feels that they're being pushed into a particular pathway, whether it is um, in response to a family violence complaint or whether it's in response to what happens after an intervention has been done, it uh, sours their experience and they are reluctant to come back again. Also, often they find that uh, workers in mainstream services, very well-intentioned, no doubt, might make assumptions about a person's culture. And this can come across as typecasting or profiling to a person seeking support. And that then makes them reluctant to raise the question of violence again, if it happens again, particularly if they haven't utilized the services before. I think the other common mistake that uh, mainstream family violence services often do is that uh, they rely on interpreters from within community, which, which isn't an issue for large communities or communities that have a large population here. So they might not be the uh, inter-community knowledge or familiarity with victim survivors and the interpreters. But for communities that are really small or emerging communities, there is very limited uh, social and cultural connections. So the likelihood of a victim survivor knowing the interpreter that a service uses are quite high. This in itself can be a barrier because they don't want their stories to be shared within the community because communities often have very set attitudes. This can be mitigated by using interpreters from outside the region or from other spaces. So the familiarity risk is reduced. The other common mistake that you often find in mainstream family violence services is that they might not be able to customize the response according to the cultural needs of a particular community. And typically this can be because the service doesn't have enough flexibility due to funding, etc. And also the, uh, the interaction or the connection with the victim survivor cannot be as long as the person might need because they don't have the deep connections within um, Melbourne or within Victoria, which can hamper their 
post-intervention support and service experience. So I think these are probably some of the key challenges that we see in mainstream services. I know you uh, mentioned cultural assumptions uh, and knowing about a culture or being culturally competent in every single culture is quite impossible. I think you agree. And by that, I mean, workers can of course read about cultures and meet people and ask them about their cultures, be open to knowing more about different people from different backgrounds. Uh, culture itself is fluid and it's changing and people in one culture are experiencing their life in different ways, depending on where they are and many other factors which we sometimes refer to as intersectionality. Uh, I think my question from you is that I know that you have been facilitating many trainings for services regarding migrant and refugee communities. What is the role of training in this instance? Uh, how do you approach if someone at the training asks you, we don't know this culture? Uh, how can you, we know more about this culture? Do we have a checklist or a tool that we can give people? Thank you for that question, Vahide, because yes, you're right. It often comes up in training because people, particularly people within the family violence sector, the workers, I mean, Genu genuinely do want to do the right thing. They want to make sure that the service they're offering is culturally appropriate, is uh, respectful and mindful of people's individual cultural needs. I think one of the assumptions, like you very rightly said, is that we, uh, many of us assume that a culture is quite uh, static and that we feel that uh, if we know key facts about a particular culture or community, whether it is through reading or whether it's through media interactions, we feel that we know them well enough. But each individual person's experience of their own culture is quite unique. And we do need to, as service providers, make sure that we are responding to that person's cultural needs, not just what we assume to be the broad cultural needs of a particular community. Of course, uh, a worker cannot know everything about either one culture or know little things about many cultures that they might be able to work, that they might be working with. But what we do need to do is be client-led and making sure that we are constantly checking in with the client before we are offering them interventions about what it is that they would need from us to ensure that our intersectional approach taking their culture, language, background, and other indicators into account, whether our response is going to fit in with what they need and what they would like from us. I think being client-led is very important and being respectful and being able to listen to and hear what they're saying is more important than just knowing something about their culture, which we have either gathered from previous training or from books. So a lot of cultural competency training that we do, we actually, rather than telling people about individual cultures, we actually uh, coach them in how they can ask the right questions to ensure that they're communicating safety, acceptance, empathy, and being non-judgmental to their clients, as opposed to trying to tell them that Somalian culture is like this and Indian culture is like that, or Iranian culture is like that, because Within each one of those cultures, there are hundreds and hundreds of variations because these are large cultural bodies. 
So it would really be good to make sure that organizations have good interculturally informed policies in how they train their staff to do intake and assessment in a respectful manner, rather than training their staff to be experts in a particular culture. And sometimes the best way of doing that is through your hiring practices, making sure that your workforce reflects the communities that you serve. So when someone from a particular culture comes in, they feel welcome because they can see that it is not a monocultural environment in the service that they're going to. The easiest way to demonstrate inclusion and welcome is have it reflected in your workforce. Um, Anu, I'm going to uh, read you some statements and I'm not saying that these statements are wrong or right. I've heard these statements in the field, uh, working in family violence, and I'm sure you've heard them too. Please tell me what comes to your mind. Give me examples, say if you disagree and why, and elaborate as much as you like. First statement, family violence workers may be confused and uncertain about how to respond to migrant and refugee women's experience of family violence. I think uh, when that statement you read up, what comes to mind is that uh, I don't know whether family violence workers might be confused or uncertain, but I definitely think that they are sometimes um, um, at a loss on how they should respond or react to a migrant or refugee woman's experience of family violence. And I say this from personal experience because many of the women we serve, which where we provide a service to, have endured tremendous levels of violence for long periods of time before they've actually uh, decided to reach out for service. And sometimes it's not because they have made the first move to uh, seek support. Sometimes it's because a neighbor has called the police or someone else has highlighted that violence is in present in a relationship and they've come to the attention of services. So I think it truly does um, put service providers at a loss because from their experience of uh, providing a family violence service to mainly mainstream uh, communities, they see people access support much earlier in the piece. And I think we spoke about this a little bit earlier where many migrant women might have endured years of abuse of different types like uh, financial abuse with highly controlling, uh, if they, particularly if they come from highly controlling patriarchal communities, they might have endured extensive emotional and psychological abuse from their partners as well as the partner's families and they wouldn't have even realized that these are forms of violence. Many of them um, have very little control over their bodies, their ability to take control of reproductive rights. Many of them would have not even been asked before tracking devices were put on their phone through electronic tracking and others. They might not have access to their own bank accounts, uh, email accounts and other forms of communication. But the only time that they've actually realized they're experiencing violence is when physical or sexual violence has happened. And this can truly uh, make the person that they're disclosing these abuses to at a loss on how they can even begin to support this woman who's gone through 
a long period of abuse. So I think the confusion comes from how they should react or respond because those are very, very confronting um, instances for a worker. Financial difficulties and not having access to social or financial assistance makes refugee and migrant women stay in a violent relationship. I think I would agree completely. And I don't think it's only refugee and migrant women. I think many women remain in violent relationships because of these two things. It is exacerbated in the instance of uh, migrant and refugee women because many of them spend um, the initial years uh, of their arrival and settlement here in Australia, trying to set themselves up uh, with, um, you know, just setting up their families. And they may not even be aware that they have financial rights. And that can definitely make it difficult. And being in a environment that they're not familiar with, even after years of being here, language difficulty, uh, being stuck in low paying, uh, unstable, vulnerable employment, and not having access to social connections, which are so important when a victim survivor is recovering from after having left a violent relationship. All of these are very real barriers to a woman seeking support to leave. And sometimes it's classically a case of uh, being with the devil you know, rather than trying to risk something unknown. And that can be a huge barrier for women um, reluctant to leave a violent relationship. And there is a huge community pressure. Uh, often we forget that uh, a migrant or refugee person's entire life here in a new country revolves around their own community. And in communities where leaving a partner or leaving a family is highly stigmatized, the lack of social support is a major barrier. Refugee and migrant people's family violence issues are more complicated because of their culture. I, I would disagree that uh, anybody's experience of family violence or any issues of family violence are more complicated because of, a cult because of the culture that they belong to. I think uh, violence is not condoned or encouraged in any culture. And we know that uh, universally, uh, while people from certain cultures might have different views of gender equality, violence is violence and violence is always uh, wrong in any way, shape or form and a violation of human rights. I think what does get more complicated is for services to respond in a manner that is culturally sensitive and culturally informed to ensure that women from multicultural backgrounds are given support that they're able to sustain outside of those relationships that are violent. And we give them and empower them with mechanisms to build and rebuild their lives here in a foreign country, in a country that's foreign to them after they leave violent relationships. I don't think it's the culture that complicates, it's the lack and barriers to providing culturally effective support that complicates uh, a refugee and migrant woman's experience of family violence uh, remediation. You're listening to Making the Links, a prevention of violence against women project.
We are back and I'm speaking with Anu Krishna on family violence services working with migrant and refugee women. Anu, we know from research that refugee and migrant women access services at a very late point. And I think you mentioned it as well in uh, your conversation that we had. Uh, but we also know that women uh, may engage with a family violence service after years of abuse and family violence. And this is the case, as you mentioned again, for migrant and refugee women, as well as other women. So I think it's important for practitioners to know that they may only have one chance in engaging a woman when that woman enters their service. Do you have any recommendation for working with migrant and uh, refugee women seeking help from family violence service? And by that, I mean, do you have any should and shouldn'ts, do's and don'ts? And you could give us examples as well. I think definitely. I think there are some basic things that we as service providers can do to ensure that that first point of contact that uh, a woman, a victim survivor from a refugee or migrant background has when she enters a service to ensure that she is not pushed away or it makes a second uh, or needs to make an approach again. I think um, some of the things are obviously self-evident, uh, respect, uh, consideration, empathy, and being completely non-judgmental, which is, um, I guess, the cornerstone or the core of our practice as family violence practitioners within services. But in relation particularly to migrant and refugee women, I think one of the first uh, do's that I would probably put in is ensuring that we are making our services both in policy as well as in practice welcome to women from different backgrounds. And like I said before, it's very difficult for a person who has um, a migrant and refugee background to approach a mainstream services if they don't see themselves reflected in some way, shape or form within the service, whether this is in the form of staff, whether it's in the form of literature that's available, the spaces that we create, ensuring that these are welcoming, that we do uh, demonstrate that we are welcoming of people from every single background. And it could be as simple as asking upfront, uh, would you like us to organize an interpreter for you? Uh, many times we find that women from migrant and refugee backgrounds will say that uh, they have enough understanding of English, but understanding conversational and basic English is quite different and very different to engaging with a complex intake. So just offering that support uh, rather than just taking the box and saying that, yep, the client has said that they don't need it. And then moving on from there, constantly checking in with them to make sure that um, I know that this form is quite, lo uh, quite long, quite complex. Would you like some support from a community member to complete it? Things like that make the person feel welcome. The other thing which I think uh, organizations also need to do is to check the client's uh, experience and understanding of the system that they're working with. Often we have a model, we follow the system, we assume that the person is following us in what we are telling them, ensuring that we're explaining the background as to why we are suggesting certain parts of action. Simple things like demystifying terms like a police report, an IVO, safety notice. We assume that everybody knows exactly what these mean because we are dealing with these terms all the time, but many times women don't. 
Um, I've met women that don't know the difference between Centrelink, Dole, a new start payment or a support payment or a family tax benefit. So trying to unpack and demystify some of those things rather than assuming that just because a person has been here for a period of time, they would be across all of these things. Often, even if a person from a migrant background has been here for a very long time, years and decades even, their interaction with the service system is very limited because often in these communities, it's usually one person who takes charge and they may never have even made a phone call to a bank or a government department or may not be aware of their personal financial situation. So again, not assuming that they know just because they've been here for a long time, that's probably a couple of the key things I would say that organizations must do, not assume. I think what organizations should not do is again, make assumptions on behalf of a client just because they present themselves in a particular cultural way. This most often happens when a client is visibly from a different culture and often um, workers, caseworkers and case managers will make assumptions based on say the dress that a client is wearing. So a person wearing a modest religious outfit like would be assumed to be someone who is not able to manage by themselves. And often the worker is actually hesitant to ask such a person, oh, can we put you in a safe house? Are you okay in this place or the other? I think we shouldn't make assumptions based on just a, how a person looks. Also, I think we need to, we must always figure out whether we are advocating for the service or we are advocating for the client. Often caseworkers and case managers are uh, in the shackles of service provision. So they're ensuring that they're trying to match the client to a service that they can provide. I think we need to shift our focus and focus on how we can advocate for the client to the services to ensure that the service matches what the client needs, not matching a client to a particular service. Anu, is there anything else that you would like to add in general to our conversation? that we need to leave all our assumptions outside the door and we shouldn't let what we see in the media either locally about a particular community or a culture here or nowadays we are on social media so we are getting news from right across the world. We shouldn't base our assumptions of a particular community or a culture based on what we are seeing or hearing but making sure that every single client who walks through our doors is treated as an individual who has a particular intersectional cultural background and checking in with them, the kind and the extent of service and support that they need from us. The other thing, other message that I'd like to give uh, people, particularly from mainstream services is that uh, just because a client does not speak the language that we speak, whether it's English or any other language, as well as we do, or even just speak it at all. We shouldn't assume that they don't have the capacity or the power to take charge of their own lives and make decisions on their own behalf. So we must always make sure that we are not leading the client down a particular path, but we are empowering the client to make the decisions that they feel are best for them. 
And once they've made the decision, I think it's our job as workers to ensure that we are supporting them completely without judgment in taking that decision forward. Thank you, Annie. Such a pleasure talking to you, knowing the knowledge you have both in uh, prevention and intervention in family violence space. This was presented through Making the Links, a prevention of violence against women project coordinated by MCWH and funded by the Australian government's Department of Social Services. People impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse can contact 1-800-RESPECT, 1-800-737-732. A 24-hour national sexual assault, domestic family violence counseling and support service. For help in your language, contact InTouch at 1-800-755-988 or visit intouch.org.au. They provide legal support no matter what your visa status is. For the men's referral service, call 1-300-766-491. Lifeline telephone 131114. Service is available 24 hour a day for suicide prevention and crisis support. We can also get free translation support through TIS on 131450 and ask them to call any of these numbers for you.